Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. Today on the program, J.D. Vance. He is the author of Hillbilly Elegy, a hugely popular best-selling memoir about his life growing up in Ohio and before that in Kentucky. And he's considered a whisperer of the white working class that helped propel Trump to the presidency back in 2016. Netflix is now out with a new movie based on his book. And I've seen it. I laughed. I cried. I felt all the feels. And I have a history with J.D. Vance going back to 2017 when I interviewed him in, a, in an interview that remains my very favorite interview I've ever done. The, the 12 minutes or so of air that we produced, and it's still available on YouTube, just touched me really deeply emotionally with his with his sister, with his honesty about his own life, a background that included abuse, drug addiction by his mom, you know, talking about how he had Pepsi in his baby bottle, about how all the kids grown up in his area didn't sleep in pajamas. They all slept in jeans. Sometimes there were serious questions about where the food was going to come from. Not as much in JD's house, but he had some of that. And, uh, you know, just sort of this resort to violence too often, to abuse too often. Uh, And ultimately, it winds up being a hopeful message because somehow this little boy with really no advantages wound up getting up, getting out, getting himself into Yale Law School and has gone on to have a really prominent and important national voice. So really happy to have him here with us today, and we will get to him in just one second. But first, I want to talk to you about Home Title Lock. So I got a crash course into home title theft, and you better pray this never happens to you because it can ruin you financially. Here's how the crime happens. You see, the legal titles to our homes are kept online where they can be hacked. Anything online can be. A cyber thief finds your home's title, forges your signature on a quick claim deed, stating that you sold your home to him. Then he will go take out a bunch of loans against your home until all of your equity is gone. You will not have any idea it happened until the collection calls start pouring in. And you'll be like, what? What do you mean? I, I own my home. I didn't do it, any of this. And you'll find out the hard way you're not protected by insurance, by your bank, or by any of these common identity theft programs. Home Title Lock, however, will protect you. And in the unlikely event that you become a victim of title theft while a member, Home Title Lock will spend up to a quarter million dollars in legal fees to help restore your home's title. How about that? That's huge. They're putting their money where their mouth is. So go to HomeTitleLock.com to register your address just to see if you've already been a victim. And then you can use code RADIO for 30 free days of protection. That's code RADIO at HomeTitleLock.com. And now, J.D. Vance. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. You're a good person to have on right now as we watch this election appear to come to its close. Uh, the Trump voters right now are angry. They're they're ticked off. They, they do believe there was funny business in connection with this election. And I was thinking about you because Hillbilly Elegy tells us the code to follow when one feels that one has been wronged. And that code is to fight, to fight. <laughs> so how does that manifest now? Yeah, I, I think there's, there's first of all, a lot of frustration over uh, the, the perceived hypocrisy. And I think, in fact, the, the real hypocrisy 
if I'm laying my cards on the table, right? So you had this election in 2016 where Trump won. It was very upsetting um, to a lot of people in the establishment press and other institutions. And for basically, you know, like two weeks, there was this period where all of these people asked themselves, oh, have we gotten something wrong? Have we missed an important part of the country? You know, we're going to go read Hillbilly Elegy or some other book to try to understand people in the middle of the country. And then that just stopped. And it was all about Russia. It was all about Trump's problems. It was all about how the election in some ways was illegitimate. And I, and I think there's just this, this, this real frustration uh, that for four years we've had this constant sense uh, and, and messaging from certain quarters that the Trump presidency is illegitimate. And, you know, we're three weeks after the election and there are these legal challenges working their way through the courts. And people are just preoccupied with you know, Trump needs to accept the legitimacy of the election. Uh, so I, I think that hypocrisy, the fact that nobody accepted his election and, and, his, and his supporters are supposed to accept uh, the election so quickly after it's done, I, I think just causes some some real frustration. Now, I, mm-hmm. I don't think I mean, you, you look at the last three weeks, you've had a lot of court filings. You've had a lot of peaceful protests. You've had a lot of people complaining on social media. Uh, but I, I really don't see any any reason to think that this is going to become you know violent or chaotic. I think you know people certainly feel uh, that they they need to fight and they need to see this through to the end. I think they're supportive of the president continuing the litigation. Uh, but I also don't think you know frankly these are the sorts of people who are going to go uh, burn up uh, stores and set cars on fire and make life a living hell for everybody. I think that when Biden is inaugurated, people will you know more or less accept it. And it'll be on to the next fight. Yeah, exactly. The fight can take many forms. It doesn't have to be looting. It can be opposing Biden's policies and making sure that they don't get forgotten again, that the working class stays in the forefront of of one's mind, which wasn't the case during the Obama years. I mean, I think as we've been told so many times uh, by, you know, these sort of elite media types that uh, Trump supporters are all they're Neanderthals, they're Nazis, they're they're racist, yep. they're awful. It's no one actually stops it to, to pay attention to what Trump did for these guys in the Rust Belt. What's happened to the Rust Belt? Why did he win four years ago, Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin? There was, as you point out, a period where people want to take a hard look at that. And, and then and then they didn't. Then they just decided to dismiss everybody as awful, as just bigoted for voting for the guy. And I just wonder whether these folks are you know, in a uniting mood right now as we're as we're being told we must unite around Biden's agenda. No, I, I don't I don't think they are. I don't think the country is in a uniting mood. And you know, frankly, this idea that we're all just going to come together over the new Biden presidency is it's a little bit of a joke. I think certainly people will, you know, let their political passions subside a little bit. Election seasons are always a little bit exhausting for people who are engaged in politics and pay attention. Uh, but but no, I I don't think people are just going to let bygones be bygones because to, to your point, you know, the, the two consistent threads that have come from the mainstream press uh, since Trump's election in 2016 have been, you know, one, the election was stolen in some way. You know, Russians hacked the election. If you look at public polls, you know, pretty large share of Democratic voters think that Russia actually like hacked into voting machines and changed the tabulation. And so, you know, there's been this sort of the sense of illegitimacy focused around the Russia issue, but it's, it's other issues, too. But the second, and I think in some ways, frankly, the more pernicious instinct that's existed in our politics is to your point, you know, turn the Trump voter into this evil, malignant force in American politics. 
And I, you know, I'm 36 years old now, and I, I can't think of any period where the winner or the loser in a presidential election has spent the next four years obsessing about the character defects of the other side of the country, right? This idea is like, oh, we lost these people. We're going to try to appeal to them, maybe even in a fake way. Maybe we're going to lie to them, but we're at least going to try to pretend that we care about their votes. That's how it works in a democratic society. That just didn't happen at all over the last four years. There's just been this idea that these people are Neanderthals or deplorables or racist. And, and I, you know, obviously sort of coming from this community, Megan, a sort of, you know, white working class community with a lot of Trump voters, I really, really am, am bothered by this. And, you know, one of the one of the threads that came out was this idea that Trump voters are animated by an extraordinary amount of racial resentment. And to dive into the details just a little bit, the way that's usually measured, is you call people up and you ask them, you know, what do you feel about this issue? What do you feel about that issue? And there are two really interesting things about these academic studies that identify Trump voters as overly racist. The first is that they're basically just asking people to discuss race issues in the parlance of modern woke politics, right? So if you talk about racial issues as a modern college-educated urban millennial, then you get low on the racial resentment score. And if you talk about race issues in a way that most non-college educated people are going to talk about them, uh, even if you are not yourself racist, just the fact that you don't have the same sort of you know, verbal uh, rules that you're following, they're going to get you tagged as high on the racial resentment score, which allows people to dismiss you. And, and related to that, you know, one of the things you pretty consistently find is that if you, you, know, you look at white voters and you give them, or white working class voters, you give them a high score on this racial resentment index, you know who else gets really high on the racial resentment index? Uh, black voters and Latino voters as well. And so there's been this sort of ignorance that there's just like a basic disconnect in how American elites and the rest of the country talk about racial politics questions. And Trump voters, I think, have been made out to be the villain uh, because they don't use the sort of modern woke dialogue. Um, and, and I just think that's, uh, you know, one, it's unfair. Two, obviously, people are going to feel put upon if you just call them racist because, you know, being called a racist can get you fired. Uh, it's sort of, you know, one of the marks of, of not being welcome in polite society. And then the third piece of it is, is just that it's created a society where we're not actually trying to listen to or understand uh, where these folks are coming from. There's just, again, no even pretense that we're going to try to understand these voters' concerns, make their lives better, make an appeal to them. And I think that's just very dangerous. And you can't expect to run an election like that and then just have these folks come back to the table willing to unify with the people who were calling them racist just a few months ago. Absolutely. It's uh, and, and as you look at sort of how the election has shaken out thus far, Trump improved his margins largely with Hispanic voters, a little with black voters. I mean, what do you think those folks are trying to say to the people who are telling everyone you have to speak about race and, and ethnicity in the way we want, otherwise you're bad, and you have to hate Trump, otherwise you're bad? You know, the, the narrative got turned on its head in when we actually saw voting results. Yeah, I, I think this, this is a really important question. And, you know, so much is represented in the language and the rhetoric. I just think that there's this obsession among professional class Americans to talk about these issues in a particular way. And if you don't, you're a bad person. 
And the perfect representation of this is this this phrase Latin X or Latinx, which is is oh. supposed to be a a non gendered way of talking instead of saying you know, Latino. It's a non gendered way of, of of talking about uh, that ethnic group. And one of the things you find with public polling is that the people who never use that word are actual Latinos, and the people <laughs> who use that word all the time are you know, white Americans with professional degrees. And so, again, there's just this weird class divergence in how you discuss these issues. And I just think of it as like this ultimate example of elitism, because you're basically telling Latinos, you know, I know a number of Latinos, a lot of them are very proud of the language, whether it's their first language or their second language, Spanish. You're telling them that the language of their home, the language of their families is somehow discriminatory and that you, the white person with a law degree from Harvard or Yale, you know how to modify their language in a way that's going to make them more politically correct and more acceptable in polite society. And I, I don't think it's surprising at all that a lot of folks looked at that. A lot of Latinos looked at that and said, uh, not for me, uh, no thank you. And, and they went for Trump in pretty surprising numbers. And it's, you know, I, I think that you know, people who have looked at the exit polls on this stuff have actually underappreciated how powerful the Latino shift to Donald Trump was. You know, the, you know exit polls are always uh, very unpredictable. But there are counties along the Rio Grande River Valley that are like 95% Hispanic, where Trump didn't just win more than he won in what he didn't just win more than he won in 2016. He actually won a majority of the overall vote. So we're talking about a pretty dramatic shift uh, to the president and to the Republican Party, which I think if Republicans can hold on to it would be great. Uh, but I, I think Democrats really should wake up to the fact. Uh, that the the way in which the professionally educated leadership class of the Democratic Party just discusses these issues comes across as condescending and frankly just a little bit weird. Like, I mean, how many times have have you listened to these people talk, whether it's about racial politics or economic issues or gender and sexuality, and just thought to yourself, like, who are these weirdos and where do they learn how to talk about that? I think that's a big problem. Well, it, I can relate to the Latinx thing as a woman because I was told by TED Talks that we need to say women, like, I don't even know how you pronounce it, but it's W-O-M-X-N, Wimbuxkin. <laughs> <laughs> or if I don't say that when speaking about my gender, I'm a bigot. I'm a transphobe. Well, screw you, TED Talks. Women, women, women. W-O-M-E-N. There, I said it, and I'm going to continue. <laughs> I don't need TED Talks to tell me how to spell my gender in some new way to be inclusive. And it, it is annoying, and it's actually motivational. I can see I can see it turning a, La, a Latina or Latino to, into a Trump voter because they, they don't want to be white-splained too, right, by my neighbors here on the Upper West Side. And, and then, you know, what we get is a situation where four years ago we had Hillary Clinton calling them all deplorable, and then Trump won, and people said, oh, we better not do that. That was bad. She shouldn't have said that. That alienated people. And instead of actually taking their own advice, we got four years of Democrats and media amping it up. They've gone from deplorables to Nazis. And uh, we have a little soundbite, J.D., that we put together, including, I think it kicks off with Christian Amanpour, who just two weeks ago, 10 days ago, Double down on this. She was ultimately forced to apologize, though her remarks sat out there uncorrected for a week. But take a listen. 
This week, 82 years ago, Kristallnacht happened. It was the Nazis' warning shot across the bow of our human civilization after four years of a modern-day assault on those same values by Donald Trump. I'm going to use an extreme example. Um, think about Hitler. So many stunning parallels to what Hitler was doing. In describing Hitler's psychological profile, and this only pertains to Adolf Hitler, there is so much that is resonant of the Third Reich in this administration. Many tendencies like Adolf Hitler. Does this look like Germany in 1932? We're getting close. And this only pertains to Adolf Hitler and pertains to nobody else. 90% of what he says, I'm like, this guy gets it. If you've read anything about the rise of the Third Reich and Adolf Hitler, you will see the parallels. Donald Trump is a true psychopath. He's like Hitler or Stalin. That sounds a lot like a certain leader that killed members of my family and about six million other uh, Jews. Oh my God. That was put together by the Washington Free Beacon. But it really brings it home. They're not going to stop. As they're telling, they're telling us that we're healed and we're unified. There's been no accounting for any of that. And in fact, yeah. there won't be because that is what they think. That's what they think yeah. of Trump's voters, 74 million people, and especially the white working class who will never be forgiven for putting him in office to begin with. They were supposed to be Democrats. They, they turned on their party. Yeah, I mean, you know, first of all, you, you owe me for having forced me to listen to that. Um, the, 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 yeah, I mean, it really drives home that there is a core component of the leadership of the country, the leadership of the democratic party that really isn't interested in unity and, um, you know, fraternity, they're interested in, in submission, right? When you talk about people like that, when you call them Nazis, uh, when you compare them to people who murdered six million innocent people, uh, you're not making a play for them to come to the table, meet as equals, hash out our differences, and move forward as a country together. You're basically asking them to submit. And I don't think people should be surprised that a very proud group of people who feel rightfully so, like they had a huge part in helping to build this country, uh, are going to submit. Uh, they're they're just not going to do it. And so I think we're going to have a pretty chaotic politics uh, from this point forward. The other thing I, I, I just want to say reacting to that video is, you know, I'm not a history expert, but I understand the Kristallnacht was pretty violent. Obviously, the Holocaust was like the most violent thing imaginable. Uh, 100,000 Trump voters gathered in D.C. a couple of weeks ago to protest, and the violence was primarily from like left-wing paramilitary groups against them. They maintained an incredibly peaceful presence despite a very heated topic and a very heated time in our country. So I, I just the, the comparison and the, the treatment of these guys is like these violent criminals, violent thugs. It's just it's just bizarre because they're actually just not right. They're angry. They're frustrated. And there are a lot of people who are expressing their views, but they're not doing it violently. And that that's just often completely uh, missed when people compare these folks to you know violent, violent extremists of the past. You know, I go back to the end of Obama's second term. And I was talking with folks close to the White House about sitting down with him because even then, this is before Trump had even secured the nomination on the Republican side, Obama was regretting not having paid more attention to this group of voters. He yep. He's smart and he understood they were unhappy and his policies had not helped them. And this could be a growing force in American politics. And I think he had genuine regret over not considering them and their needs more. And certainly they had the final say in the election of Donald Trump. But I wonder what's going to happen now, because there, there's a reason, of course, 
these folks voted for Trump. And a lot of the white working class still voted for Trump. Most of them still voted for Trump this time around. His his share of white white men went down a little, but yeah. um, they still were on Team Trump, even though he lost those states more because of suburban voters and seniors. And it could it was, looks like it was largely related to the pandemic and the way Trump talks for those voters. But looking back at what Trump did, you know, one of the reasons he was elected was he promised he was going to roll back a lot of these regulations Obama had put in place that he was going to be for the working class. And, you know, Obama wanted environmental regulations over over any sort of industrial revival. Trump was exactly the opposite. You know, he he tried to reduce well, he did reduce corporate taxes. He he tried to encourage the return of production to the United States where he would try to shame any company that was going to take its plant overseas. He he went after China and their unfair trade practices. He he did reach new trade agreements with Canada, with, with Mexico, with South Korea, all trying to favor more domestic production, not to mention tariffs he put in place to help industry here. And we had a boom in oil and gas production. This is like this is all stuff that this group of voters loved. But now you've got not just any Democrat, but Obama's number two, Joe Biden in there. And I just wonder what what you think the sense is right now amongst those voters in terms of what's about to come their way. Yeah, I mean, just as a a preliminary point, I I do think that one of the lessons for Republicans, there are obviously a lot of a lot of lessons for Democrats. We'll talk about it. One of the lessons for Republicans from 2020 is that uh, they maybe took the white working class for for advantage a little bit. I think that, you know, you should have expected that group, frankly, to go even more stronger for Trump, more strongly for Trump than they did in 2016. There was a little bit, to your point, of a stagnation, not really reversal, but certainly a stagnation. And I think that, you know, my read on this is that where Trump, you know, governed as a populist, where he really hammered China, the trade issue, um, the immigration issue is where he was most popular. And, you know, when when he governed as a traditional Republican, I, I do think that he probably, um, you know, led to some stagnation in that voting block. And so I, I think that's mm-hmm. that's one of the lessons to take away from this. Because he did ultimately cut a deal, a deal with China. I mean, he did ultimately cut a deal, which they may not have been happy he, he, about. Yeah, he, he cut he cut a deal with with China. And you know, it's funny that the, the 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 tax plan, which there were a lot of things I liked about, and some things I didn't like about it. I think to the extent that that was um, really focused on bringing capital and investment back to the country and cutting middle class taxes, it was really good for him. And to the extent that it looked like something that Mitt Romney would have done. Uh, it mm-hmm. frankly wasn't that that popular. And so there was this really, you know, interesting push and pull between the Trump instinct within the White House and you know, the more establishment instinct within the White House, which is, of course, you know, something that a lot of other folks can talk to better than I can. Um, but but I, I think on, on the Biden question, you know, what what would worry me and and what I think a lot of folks are are concerned about is sort of a reversal on the China issue. Uh, so, so I think the China issue is probably the the most substantial of Trump's uh, wins as a president. He totally changed the conversation on China. And if if you think about the environmental issue as related to the China issue, so you know, we think of environmental issues like okay, fuel standards, reducing emissions here at home. But the way in which our environmental policy can be most destructive is actually on industrial power questions. Because if the Chinese are allowed to pollute as much as they can, 
then they can build and make things and manufacture things much more cheaply uh, than we can. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going soft on China, which I think, frankly, Biden's secretary of state looks like a soft on China guy, while at the same time putting America under stricter environmental regulations than the Chinese, then what you could have is a real stagnation in American manufacturing output, which, of course, is, is sort of what you need to actually build a thriving working and middle class in the country. You have to have a viable manufacturing sector. I think that's the, the lesson of Germany. It's the lesson of Switzerland. It's certainly the lesson of the United States in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, and, and so th there is this, this fear that a lot of the wage growth that you saw over the last four years is going to get reversed in this preoccupation with instead of building a viable manufacturing sector for the middle class with this idea that you can just transition the existing middle class to the jobs of the future. And I think that's an important piece of the puzzle, but there's just no way. And, and I think if you actually listen to, for example, Rahm Emanuel talk about the economic prospects of the Midwest, you know, Rahm Emanuel said, I think it was on CNN or some other network a couple of weeks ago, well, these folks just have to learn to code. If they lose their manufacturing jobs, they have to learn to code. And I'm a very big fan of investing in the future of the economy, but you can't tell tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of manufacturing workers, they're just going to have to go back to school when they're 52 years old and learn to code. It's ridiculous. It's unrealistic. A lot of people aren't going to be able to do that. And so if that is your orientation, let's just focus on the technology sector instead of really rebuilding and reinvesting in American manufacturing. I think a lot of people are going to get left behind and a lot of the progress we made over the last few years is going to, is going to stagnate. And, and I do worry about mm -hmm. that. No, I mean, Forbes reported that um, employment grew in manufacturing jobs by almost half a million under Trump after falling by 200,000 under Obama. So, I mean, that's a pretty big swing and that's the kind of swing that can, that can turn numbers in an election. And it, so if, if Biden gets in there and starts re-implementing these regulations on manufacturing, on, you know, trying to protect the environment at the expense of the American worker, um, it could have real life consequences in terms of our electoral politics and in terms of lives, you know, I mean, you talk about like learn to code is so absurd for most people. I mean, I'm, I'd be one of them. Um, but sure. you, you, Hillbilly Elegy takes a hard look at sort of the malaise happening in these communities in the Rust Belt, the almost the lack of agency a lot of a lot of these workers have. They There isn't this let's go get them kind of attitude. I can do anything. I will learn to code. You're talking about guys who like took four lunch breaks and they were they stretched from 20 to 60 minutes over the course of time. Ultimately, they get fired. It's not all about um what the government can do for you. A lot of it has to do with attitudes that have been cultivated in these communities that might not lend themselves to brilliant careers as coders. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, you know, the way I'd put it is that there's a lot of hopelessness in these communities and they've, they've been battered in a lot of different ways for the past, you know, not 30 or 40 years, but 50 or 60 years. And there, you know, there, there's something my grandma, grandpa always used to told me. He was sort of an old, you know, union steel worker, voted for a Democrat pretty much every single election of his life. I think he voted for Reagan once in 1984, otherwise voted for Democrats his whole life. And um, you know, he he told me that, you know, look, there are people who just aren't doing very well, right? In every in every community, in every place, 
you know, there are people and he, you know, these politically incorrect guys said deadbeats, right? There's deadbeats in every community. Like the difference between the 1950s when, you know, Middletown, our hometown had a really viable manufacturing sector, you know, really robust private sector unions, um, because the jobs that supported private sector unions actually existed and hadn't been all shipped to, to China and, and Mexico. Uh, but yeah, they, they were deadbeats back then, but they were enveloped in a community that could actually get them back on the right path, right? When you take a community where all of those sort of support structures have been weakened, where you know the churches have been weakened, the jobs don't exist anymore. The people who, if you were slacking on the job in the 1950s, would have said, hey, man, you got to get your head back in the game. Let's figure this out. Those people just aren't around in the same numbers as they were 40 or 50 years ago. And so you just have much weaker, what I call community infrastructure. It's not all about government supports. It's about everything that exists in the community where you actually live. And you take that stuff away and it's just really hard for people to get back on their feet. Um, you know, yeah, some of them are not making good choices. That is a fact of life. I don't shy away from that in the book. I don't shy away from talking about that uh, in, in my life. Uh, but if you're going to actually help those people, and I think we should help people, uh, whether they're ambitious or not, whether they want to learn to code or whether they just want to work in a simple manufacturing job uh, and be able to earn a, a living wage, is you've got to have a viable and robust set of institutions. And one of those institutions is good manufacturing-oriented jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can talk about this question of cultural versus economics. I think it's, it's obviously a pretty controversial thing that the book dives right into. You know, I, I've always thought that the economics and the culture are related, right? If the culture starts to go south, it's harder to sort of maintain economic productivity. Uh, if the economy starts to go south and the jobs disappear, then people become hopeless. And that sort of starts to affect the culture. And I think these things are all related. And if your solution to this problem, if your solution to these communities is, hey, uh, you guys just need to go to Ohio State or the University of Cincinnati and pick up C++ software programming, uh, then you're not actually going to help people. You're making yourself feel better by ignoring them, uh, but you are ignoring them. I think we should just be honest about that fact. The other important point to make here, and it's 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 like the third rail of American politics, is this question of immigration. And there's always the you know what, what are we talking about when we're talking about immigration? Are we talking about wage competition among the lower class? I think that's actually a big driver of why a lot of Latinos in the Southwest went to Donald Trump is because he was a little bit um, stricter on immigration. Um, there's this question about is it, is it culture or race? Is it people just don't like Latinos? They don't like Mexicans. They don't like Guatemalans. Um, you know, I, I really don't think that's part of the story. But the third thing that we just don't talk about on the immigration side is the opioid epidemic and the effect that having this really porous border has. And we know probably 80 or 90,000 pretty young Americans are going to die of an opioid overdose. Uh, That has been pretty consistent uh, for a long time. But one of the ways that those drugs are getting in, especially fentanyl, uh, which is a very powerful opioid that pretty much instantly gives you an overdose if you take a sufficient dose of it. Um, Fentanyl is being manufactured in China and primarily coming across the southern border. And so when when we you know I think we're going to have a big reversal of Trump era immigration policies from the Biden administration, you know, but if they're listening to me and they probably aren't, I would say whatever you do on the southern border, make it as hard as possible to bring fentanyl into American streets because you want to talk about hopelessness. 
in towns like mine, talk about the meth and the fentanyl that are coming into these communities where even if you have people who are working good jobs, they get snared up in this stuff and it's just over. More with JD in just one second. But first, have you ever Googled yourself, your neighbors? Mm-hmm. The majority of Americans admit to keeping an eye on their online reputation, but Google and Facebook are the tip of the iceberg when it comes to finding public records. There is an innovative website called Truthfinder, and it's now revealing the full scoop on millions of Americans. Truthfinder can search through hundreds of millions of public records in a matter of minutes. Truthfinder members can begin searching in seconds for sensitive data like criminal, traffic, and arrest records. Before you bring someone new into your life and around the people you care for, consider trying Truthfinder. What you find may astound you. This might be the most important web search that you ever do. So go to truthfinder.com slash Kelly right away to start searching. Again, that's truthfinder.com slash Kelly. You talk about culture versus economics and the effect on a community and, you know, the absurdity of the learn to code message to these coal miners, let's say. Think about if they turned around, if, if you know, Trump's administration turned around to black America in Chicago and, you know, where you talk about blight, right? And said, learn to code. Yep. <laughs> the, the outrage that we would get in that message. You know, there, yes, we do have to talk about agency and willingness to get off the couch and fix your own life for sure. That's a, that's a massive piece of it. But we also have to be realistic about what the economics look like and what's really realistic and, and expecting of these people. And I just think you can't, if you can't do it with the black community, you can't do it with the white community. And what we're really talking about is people who are lower socioeconomic status and, and how yep. to lift them up. And, and you got to look at both of these things. What's their attitude and what's, what's potentially available to them. Yeah. There's, there's a, a sociologist who's actually a, a very liberal guy, but I've gotten to know him a little bit. And I, I cited him a few times in the book. His name's William Julius Wilson. And, um, you know, v- very much a guy on the left, but just incredibly thoughtful about these problems. And, you know, he's, he's been, I think, pretty influential in how I think about this interplay between cultural and e- economics. Because you know, you're right, you've got to take people who are sitting on the couch doing nothing, and you got to get them off the couch. You got to get them into good jobs, you know, hopefully able to support families, able to raise those families in stability and comfort. And then you, know, you create a virtuous cycle from generation to generation instead of, you know, the vicious cycle that we sometimes have in families that are struggling with joblessness and, um, and addiction and so forth. But, you know, one of the things that's going to motivate people to get off the couch, of course, is the existence of a good job, right? That's an important piece of it, but it's not the only piece. Another thing that's going to motivate people to get off the couch is when their neighbors and friends are also getting off the couch, right? When you're in a community where there just isn't a lot going on, where a lot of people are doing drugs. A lot of people aren't finding good jobs. Even the guys who want to go and work and find good jobs, it creates this sort of mentality where why try, right? I, I, I call it, you know, learned helplessness. Um, you know, hopelessness is a good way to think about it. But but if you want to actually improve people's lives, you can't just say, well, here's a money, here's some money, right? Here's here's a check from the government, spend it well, or here's a good job, go and apply. But you've got to create the community infrastructure uh, that makes it people feel like it's possible. That if they try, something good is actually going to come from it. And, and they've got to feel pressure too. I mean, I you know I, I've certainly been. Um, I'm sure all of us have been in moments in our lives where we're feeling a little bit lazy, a little bit shiftless, unsure what we want to do. 
you know, one of the things that helps break you out of that pattern is somebody in your life saying, hey, you know, do something else here, right? Um, you know, go, go, you know, maybe it's maybe it's your wife who says you need to do the dishes or help out a little bit more. Maybe it's somebody in your family who says you need to go and, and apply to that job. You know, those things matter. But like I think about my own life and all of these little influences that helped get me on the right path. You take those influences away and it's just me trying to figure this stuff out on my own. And I think things just don't don't go as well for me, right? If Mamaw wasn't telling me you need to go get off your ass and apply for that job and work hard, if if I didn't have, you know, my my sister and my aunt and my mom saying, you know, if you want to have a good job, you may need to go get an education. If I didn't have people in the Marine Corps saying, you know, here's what you need to do, here's how you need to apply for financial aid. Uh, here's how you need to sort of structure your life so you can actually succeed in school. You know, all of these weird little community influences are what I think the building blocks of success ultimately are. Um, and 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 those, you know, that that's sort of as I see it, the interplay between culture and economics is it, it's not just the good job; it's also the full spate of community actors that make it seem both possible and available to you to actually mm. get off that couch and go do something. Um, and that's what's, you know, that's what's ultimately missing when you're, when you've got people, um, who, who, who are, are really, really left behind and, and really don't see a path forward. I also think that's the thing that's missing the most is people in their lives who can actually help them. Right. It's, it's back to the old, if you can see it, you can be it. You know, it, it's, it's very helpful to see role models around you who have done it, but I also think this is one of the problems with identity politics, because the messaging from people who are obsessed with their gender, their skin color, their sexuality uh, is you. The reason you can't do it is because of these immutable characteristics like you can't. The American dream is not possible for you because the system won't allow it. And it completely takes away a person's agency. And, And they do openly crap on the American dream. It's not possible for you. America yep. itself is not what people say it is. And this anti-American sentiment cropping up, I think, is another thing that motivates a lot of voters. But it's they're basically challenging the notion that anyone, no matter their circumstances, can achieve success in this country. One, one of yep. the things that I think is so beautiful about your book, your story, and the reason why many on the left hate it, <laughs> yep. is that you're... You you're an example of it being possible, even under really tough circumstances, even for a kid who has almost no advantages other than a grandma and and grandpa who really loved him and decided to give him a little tough love. Yeah. I mean, the thing I always ask people when you know, they, they talk about the structural and systemic factors that make it hard or impossible for people to achieve is let's say you're absolutely right. Let's just say for the sake of argument that you're absolutely right. What good is that message when directed at a kid who's struggling and trying to figure out how to make their way? Right. So I'm not one of these people who says that people, you know, says that, that sort of poor folks don't have any disadvantages. Like I can't possibly look at my grandma's life and my grandma's upbringing and say, you know, she had the same set of opportunities as someone who was born in uh, an upper class background in the 1940s in New York City. I think, frankly, she also had a lot of advantages, right? She had, I think, a lot of important cultural training. 
that she wouldn't have gotten it. But obviously her life was hard. Uh, I don't, I, I don't know anybody who would look at my life and say, you know, JD had it easy relative to a kid born of privilege. But so what in some ways is the takeaway from that to tell a kid like me when I was 12 years old, your life is unfair. The deck is stacked against you. There's nothing you can ultimately do. So, you know, why isn't the message that I take from that ultimately, well, I should just give up then, right? If the deck is stacked against me, if there's no hope, then I shouldn't even try. And there's there's just this weird strain of thought in American life right now where you can't hold two thoughts in your head at the same time. And, and in this particular moment, I, I think the two thoughts, but this particular question, the two thoughts that we have to hold in our head at the same time are one, yes, life can be hard for people who are born uh, poor in tough circumstances, but two, it's still important for them to see that they have agency and that they need to try anyway, right? It mm-hmm. might not always work out. And we got to be honest about that fact. But the worst of all possible worlds is where people are just told, there's no hope. There's no reason to try. There's no reason to make anything of yourself. And I do unfortunately think that's the message that a lot of people on the left are ultimately giving uh, to communities like mine. I am, you know, my, you know, my, my grandparents were sort of classic blue dog Democrats. And I'm actually sympathetic to a lot of the arguments that folks on the left make about, you know, certain unfairnesses you know, especially when it comes to people who, who don't um, who, who don't have a lot of money, who grow up in traumatic homes, who grow up in abused and neglected environments. I don't think that they're wrong, that that creates special disadvantages. But you can't just encourage people to wallow in everything that's gone wrong in their lives. You have to be able to say, on the one hand, you know, we as community leaders, as policymakers, as media folks, are going to try to make it a little bit easier for those who are disadvantaged to have a shot at the American dream, while at the same time telling people who are struggling to achieve the American dream, it's possible. It is out there for you if you're if you're willing to work for it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the other piece of it too is once once <laughs> is once one achieves the American dream, the response, the collective response in, from the left in particular, should not be "fuck off." Like that's the one of the problems we're seeing is success has been so demonized in the country now. Even if you are self-made, just having it is a problem. You know, they'll they'll hold it against you. You've you've you must now see the rest of the country as less than. You must not be paying your fair share. You have yeah. to give more of it back. You know, and the less you give, the more of a miser and awful person you. It's like I don't know that I. I just think we've changed the messaging from good for you. Maybe I could do it too. help me understand how to screw you. Yep. Yeah. There, there's definitely a way in which I, I think our country is really, I shouldn't say our country. I, I think that our leadership class is really uncomfortable with success and with people who have achieved success. But I, I saw this interesting poll just a couple of days ago and it was looking you know, just at Trump voters, college educated Trump voters versus non-college educated Trump voters. And it was, the question was, you know, do you think that it's possible for a person to achieve the American dream? And I think it was 71% of non-college educated Trump voters said yes. And I think it was, you know, 40% or something of the college educated Trump voters said yes. And it was true for the for the Biden voters as well. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was basically the people who didn't have college degrees were actually more optimistic about their future and more optimistic about the chances for the American dream than people who had gone to college. And I, And I think that's because they haven't thankfully absorbed the message 
that their lives are hopeless just because they don't have all the advantages in the world. And that's that's just an important thing. And I I, I worry about our our country's you know, inability to you know try to uplift those who are struggling without treating those people as hopeless children who have no have no agency and no no responsibility. Um, you know, there's, there's Wait, the but can, famous, can I ask you something about that? Because I, yeah. I I wonder is the other piece of that the people who are college educated saying eh I don't know is that do you think born of I I made it it's not that great <laughs> like I have to work my ass <laughs> off I never see my family I, the government takes 50% of my dough uh, you know I I kind of made it to the promised land and meh. what do you think you know I I I think there's there's part of that going on but the the biggest when I looked at that poll what I took away from it is that if you're a working class American uh, versus a professionally educated American, a person with with post uh, bachelor's education, uh, then you're you're fundamentally living in in two different media and information environments. And I, I do think that you know our universities, uh, our elite media institutions have just grown pretty pessimistic about the American experience, the American experiment. And consequently, people who have spent their lives in those academies, in those media environments, I think they've just absorbed uh, that things are uh, more pessimistic and and more, you know, more negative than a lot of working class Americans believe. Uh, I, I also, you know, I, I really do think that a lot of this is like ideology ends up trumping people's ability to think because one of the more interesting dynamics is in, in 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 response to the book is that people who were you know really well educated who are sort of the winners in american society both in terms of their income and their prestige they really wanted to project their own political narrative onto the book and they wanted to sort of fit me into this box right so if like jd said this thing that i agree with i'm gonna ignore that I'm going to only you know, attach myself to the things that I disagree with or, or vice versa, right? People would sort of, you know, had either very strongly positive or negative views. And, and what I found, you know, is that working class Americans were actually better able to hold two thoughts in their, their head at the same time. They sort of got that I was, I was making both an argument about the fact that, yeah, sometimes life is unfair, but you still got to try to work against that unfairness and make something of yourself anyway. And, you know, I, I think that's just because people who don't grow up in a particular media environment are not constantly looking for alarm bells that a particular idea or concept violates one of their the sort of sacred right. tenets of their faith or All ideology. Right, and so they're I, just more open-minded. I think I predict with your movie, because the movie is now out about, uh, you know, based on your book, you, you're going to get slaughtered by the reviewers and you're going to get completely loved by the actual viewers. It'll be reviewers versus viewers, as we've seen in any film that, you know, that has an, a message like yours, which is the, the American dream may still exist. It may not be perfect. It may not be pretty, but it does still exist. And that even shines a spotlight on this group of people, you know, people in Appalachia, people struggling with the opioid crisis in a way that that isn't entirely 
about woke culture or victimization and how the country's bad. That's what we've seen. You know, it's, it's one of the reasons why Roseanne, the reboot was so successful, right? Like they talked yep. about these issues in a way that really resonated with real America, even though the people who wrote about that, the reboot were like, they're horrified. They're hor-. Even before her scandal, they were like, this is horrifying. How, how could the show be succeeding? And I saw this already. There was one review by the Washington Post that's, this is so perfect because that what their criticism of the book, the movie, is that they, they really wanted it to be more woke. And, and this yep. is a quote from one of the reviews. Vance paints Appalachia as a near exclusively white space. Erased are black residents and their history in the region. Missing are the many generations of Native American communities. Ignored is a growing Latino population. Disregarded are Appalachians who embrace racial justice and acceptance of their LGBTQ neighbors. This is a personal story of your family. Why did, yeah, why did you get into all that? Right, why, <laughs> right, right. Like, and, and can you imagine what a movie like that would look like? You know, where where you're trying to tell the story of a family, but you have to you have to actually talk about every other conceivable group, majority, minority, what have you, <laughs> and present them on the screen so that it satisfies this sort of woke obsession. It, it's, yes, with it's a little just no justice, no peace right? sign in the background. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 just yeah, it's it's just totally preposterous. Um, and and you know, as it happens, most of my family voted for Donald Trump. Uh, my family is hardly politically monolithic. My mom, you know, who by the way has been clean for six years now, is, is doing very well. Uh, oh, just man. just saw her a few days uh, just saw her a few days ago. You know, my mom voted for Jesse Jackson in the Democratic primary in 1984. Um, and and then she's voted for Republicans and she's voted for Democrats since. I, I just think that there's this way in which elite Americans want working class Americans to be more ideological and more woke than they actually are. You know, one of my favorite responses to the book or to the movie, I can't even remember uh, which at this point, uh, but is is that uh, you know J.D. Vance doesn't talk enough about BIPOC, BIPOC and LGBTQIA Americans in his sort of experience of Appalachia. It's like, okay, so BIPOC is black indigenous people of color. LGBTQIA is lesbian, gender non-conforming, bisexual, transgender, intersex, asexual. And I read this and I'm like, you people are crazy. Like truly (laughs) the authentic real Appalachians use these like 14 character pronouns every time they talk about themselves. <laughs> and, you know, I, I just listen to this and I think, who, who are you kidding that you think this is the way that Appalachians or frankly, anybody else, black, white, brown, whatever, talks about themselves and their communities. This is a particular obsession of a particular upper class of Americans. And I think it's insane. Uh, but don't try to pretend that that's the real America because you want it to be. It just isn't. Right. A moment on the asexuals in the holler. You know, what, one, one of my, one of my good friends, just a, a, a side, you know, he's sort of like a, a populist. He calls himself a populist Reagan Democrat, but um, he's, he's a professor. I won't give his name because I don't want him to, to get fired, but uh, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's a gay man, uh, you know, in his, in his mid fifties, just a great, great friend of ours. And he sent me this tweet from Elizabeth Warren's campaign a Twitter account back when she was still running for a president. And it was like something like, you know, we love all people who are intersex, asexual, and two-spirit. 
And this guy sends me this tweet and he says, look, man, we gay guys just wanted to be left the hell alone. You, mm-hmm. you can have your two spirits. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's something about just this bizarre way of discussing these issues that's alienating and dividing the country. And I think, you know, ultimately is going to be politically suicidal for Democrats if they embrace it wide scale. Coming up in a minute with J.D., how does he think Glenn Close did in her portrayal of Mama? And what real-life item of Mama's was Glenn Close wearing for her portrayal of the role? And also, we're going to ask him what his mom, Beverly, has to say about the film. But before we get to that, want to bring you a feature we call Sound Up, uh, which involves sound bites making the news or people in the news saying stupid, usually things. Um, today, we've got one stupid and one smart. And the first is from Governor Cuomo of New York, who has been honored with an international Emmy. You know, these are the awards you get for outstanding work on television, an international Emmy for his performance during the COVID quarantine. Uh, They are celebrating how he did with his daily press briefings. And it's insane because not only has New York just been just crushed by by COVID and that we have the highest death toll, which no one's blaming that in particular on Governor Cuomo. But what pals like mine, Janice Dean, are trying to call attention to is the fact that he issued an order during the COVID crisis mandating that the nursing homes in New York State take any COVID positive patients. They were not allowed to turn them away. And of course, inside the nursing homes are the most vulnerable population. And 6,000 plus COVID positive patients were placed in New York nursing homes and more than 6,000 died. And, And it's directly as a result. I mean, you can see that they put the virus in these homes and then thousands of people died. And the number is actually much greater than 6,000 because many had to be moved out of the nursing homes, sent to hospitals, and they died there. And as Janice has been pointing out, they're not counting the hospital deaths when they tally up the number of seniors from uh, nursing homes who died. So this is a terrible thing. And even JD has said she wouldn't be trying to blame anybody for any of this um, if Cuomo would just take some responsibility for it, if he would apologize, if he would explain what the thinking was, but he won't. He's blamed the nursing homes, the nurses, God, Mother Nature, the old people themselves. Old people, they die, he said. He's been so callous and crass about it. So for him to be given an award is pretty outrageous. And it just speaks to how silent the press has been on his failures that a group like this would even think it would be okay to honor him in this way. So we're going to play for you first Governor Cuomo and then Janice on Fox and Friends reacting. Listen. What an honor and pleasant surprise during these hard times. I thank the International Academy and Bruce Paisner for this incredible award. Thank you to all the members of the Academy. Your work has brought smiles and hope and relief for so many people during these difficult days. I wish I could say that my daily COVID presentations were well choreographed, scripted, rehearsed, or reflected any of the talents that you advance. They didn't. They offered only one thing, authentic truth and stability. But sometimes that's enough. Every time we see this governor celebrating himself on television, uh, it's just a reminder of the people that we lost, uh, partly because of his leadership. 
So, Janice, this was a statement from the Academy. They said the governor's 101 daily briefings worked so well because he effectively created television shows with characters, plot lines, and stories of success and failure. What's your reaction? I heard that to uh, get an Emmy Award, you have to send videotape of yourself uh, to the board members. And so to think that the governor was going through some of his TV appearances talking about deaths in New York and submitting those videos uh, to the Emmy folks uh, really makes me physically sick. Uh, he could start his award-winning speech by saying, I'm really sorry for your loss. That's something we have never heard from this governor at any of his uh, meetings or uh, his uh, PowerPoint presentations. Well said, Janice. I mean, he's, she, she made the point, well, while this guy's going to be taking home his Emmy, Janice and these other 6,000 families are taking home urns and caskets. This is no time for his victory lap with his book talking about leadership lessons during the COVID crisis. And it's certainly not the time for awards. How crass of the international Emmys, how callous and cold toward the, toward the families who are still suffering with, from these losses. I mean, you, you can say Cuomo isn't entirely to blame for these deaths, but you certainly can't say he did the right thing by issuing that order and by not showing any empathy for these families. And so to reward it with this kind of an award is just wrong. It's just wrong. So uh, obviously I'm on Janice's side and I would be even if she weren't one of my closest friends. Uh, okay, more on that as we get it. By the way, Cuomo said we all have to not travel for Thanksgiving, but guess what he was going to do? Make his mom and some family members travel to him. No problem. He can do it, but we can't do it. And then when he got outed for that, he had to reverse the order. Aren't you sick of these politicians doing this? Do as I say, not as I do. Rules for thee, but not for me. Anyway, back to JD. Just so the audience knows, Hillbilly Elegy, you wrote it sort of on the side. You were in law school and Amy Chua, Tiger Mom. She wrote uh, the, the book about, uh, what's the name of her book? That's the battle cry of the tiger mother. Battle hymn, battle hymn of the tiger mother. Yeah, and she's okay. got a couple she's of amazing. Good books. She's like an yeah. I'm, she's she's awesome. I'm in love with Amy Chua. You should read whatever she writes. She's so open minded. She's like she's got her very strong thoughts on how things should be, but she doesn't shut down opposing viewpoints. Anyway, uh, she was your professor at Yale Law, and so you write the book. She encourages you to keep writing. You wind up getting it published. The initial order was for ten thousand copies. And how yep. many copies has the book sold now? I, I don't know, um, but it's it's I think somewhere between two and three million at this point. OMG! I mean, that's huge, yeah. huge by yeah. any measure. And in the book, it's you're so honest. You are very honest about growing up um, in your younger, more formative years in Appalachia in the holler. Uh, where Mama was and had a house, and then you guys moved to Ohio, and you had a drug addicted mother who went from man to man, some of whom were abusive, as was she. And the moment you write about in the book, as I think one of the lowest is portrayed in the movie, which is by Ron Howard, and I think that was you tell me, but I think it was the 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 car. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a scene where, um, you know, a scene in the movie, but a scene from my own life where, you know, mom 
sort of loses loses her temper in a car and you know threatens to crash it and then you know eventually um you know one thing leads to another and the cops come and they arrest her and you know sort of sets off a pretty traumatic set of, of moments in our childhood and you know, I, I mean, I, I don't know if you got this from from the book, Megan, but you know, one of the things that I've always felt um, is that, you know, I, I think people sort of hear the word abuse and they think like sociopathic, you know, sort of constant physical and emotional trauma. And that's just sort of what's going on the whole time. And, you know, by the standards of like an objective child psychologist. I certainly had a traumatic childhood. There are, you know, these ways you can measure it, you know, how many experiences of what they call ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. And, you know, certainly both mom and uh, her children had a lot of ACEs when, when they were growing up and when we were growing up, but I never felt like we had this sort of deeply traumatic or unusual childhood, right? I mean, that's sort of one of the points of the book is that, you know, yeah, we, we experienced some ACEs, but you know, a lot of kids in our neighborhood and a lot of families did as well. And, and I, I try to, you know, th- th- there's, there's this book that I read when I was a teenager. I think it's called a child called it. And you may have read this book, but it's about, a, I think a truly sort of psychopathic, almost torturing mother and the way that she treated her kid. And that was just never how I felt about our family. And it's certainly not how I feel about our family now. I think that we definitely were a traumatic and chaotic bunch, but there was just a way in which it was a little bit more normal. And this sort of goes back to the culture point that I make. It's it's not that anybody in our family was especially mean. I mean, there are a lot of good things about, about mom um, during my childhood and, and we're you know, very, very close today. But there was just a, a weird way in which these sorts of moments that do leave their marks on kids and do cause real problems later on uh, were kind of normal. And I think part of our challenge, if we actually care about you know, the most disadvantaged kids in our communities, is that we've got to figure out ways to make that sort of stuff a little bit less normal. And I even see it, you know, to, to be honest, with, with my, you know, we have two little ones, a three-year-old and a nine-month-old, and they're both doing well. But I often have to catch myself because just the natural way that I respond, you know, to my toddler going completely insane, it, you know, I have to check myself and say, you know what, this this is not the normal way to do things. This is not a good thing. But if you don't know that and you don't have any sense of what is normal and isn't normal, uh, then I think it can just be very easy to sort of fall into that cycle where, again, it's not an intense, aggressive level of abuse. It's just a sort of baseline level of chaos and trauma that ultimately isn't good for these kids. Well, of course, the consciousness of it is more than half the battle. You know, the fact that you can stop and say, wait, is this a good instinct? That's more than half the battle. And it's what most people who do engage in that cycle of abuse do not have. Um, And you've, of course, got Usha, who's amazing. And we'll get to in a second. Your wife is spectacular and extremely accomplished and smart and a great partner to you, which is another big advantage. Um, But we talked about this a little when when we met and I interviewed you on camera, those some of those um, childhood experiences, those ACEs. And I, yep. I do wonder whether because abuse can cause in adulthood, you know, physical problems. It can cause substance abuse problems, psychological issues like depression, anxiety. A lot a lot of people have those without having had abuse in their past, even if that abuse was normalized within the community, you know, which may, maybe that takes away the element of shame. 
because everyone's having it. You know, I, I, that, that yeah. would be an interesting thing to look at. But do you have you felt any of that? Because not only did you have this tumultuous background, but then, you know, you're performing at these elite levels now, you know, in venture capital, first in San Francisco. Now you've got this other thing going on in Ohio. So that's stressful in and of itself. And I wonder if you're feeling any of that manifest. You know, I, I think that um, the way it manifests in me to the, to the extent I notice it at all is that, you know, in, in sort of super stressful moments, I kind of get this adrenaline rush. And I talk about in the book, there's, there's been this documented sort of fight or flight response. I definitely kind of have this, this fight response when uh, there, there's sort of moments of, of, of high stress and high tension. And so I think by and large, um, that serves me reasonably well. And I think that the, the main thing is just your point. I have to be self-aware sometimes and check, you know, maybe my, my most aggressive impulses at certain times. I'm getting to the point now where it's a little bit just more normal, where I've kind of like accepted that there are certain instincts that I have that aren't necessarily super, super positive. And, and you sort of, you know, you, you check them in various ways before they really go off the rails. Um, I, I do, you know, there's, there, you know, one of the, the pioneers in looking at adverse childhood experiences is this woman, uh, Nadine Burke Harris, who's a, a, a brilliant doctor. And um, I believe she's a psychiatrist. Uh, working in 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 California, and you know, Nadine actually has a really great book about this, which I which I encourage people to read. But you know, I, I remember reading her book, and there's a story where I, I don't totally remember the details, but where she talks about this guy who had had a pretty traumatic, chaotic childhood, had sort of achieved the American dream, had a pretty stable, happy life, a happy marriage, and just like drops dead of a heart attack at 63. Mm. And one of the things she talks about in the book is that you do have these, you know, even for people who You'll pretty much have their lives under control. Who sort of a you know quote unquote escaped the trauma of of their past. They tend to have much worse health outcomes later on. They have higher incidences of of heart attacks, of you know, pulmonary disease, even of cancer. And so there's this weird unexplained link between having a chaotic childhood and having these negative physical health moments later on. So there's definitely a part of me that worries. You know that I'm I'm of sort course. of. You know, I have I have a I have a I have a little bit uh, less time on the clock than you might otherwise think, and so I, I feel that pressure sometimes. But yeah, you know, I wouldn't say that like emotionally or psychologically, I still feel especially affected by by what happened when I was a kid. And you know, I'm 36 years old. It's been a long time. It's over half of my life at this point where I've sort of been on my own. Well, there was also a study out of UCLA that showed the presence of a loving parental figure can provide protection to an abused child. And yep. You know, I, I don't know if I want to use the word rescue, but at least th it provides a barrier to some of those negative effects. <clears throat> and you had that. You had that in Mama, your maternal grandmother, who is the star of your book, the star of your life, the star of this movie, uh, played yeah. by Glenn Close in the movie, spectacularly. I mean, you knew Mama, but I'm just saying Glenn transformed herself yeah. in a compelling way. And I thought, uh, I just, I was completely enthralled by the performance. What, first of all, let's just start with Glenn and then we'll get to the real character. How do you think Glenn Close did? I thought she did great. Yeah, we, we you know, we, we visited the set a few times. They, they filmed in, you know, a little bit in Middletown and, and mostly in um, Macon, Georgia and surrounding areas. And, you know, I, I took my aunt, my mom and my uncle um, and, and Usha down to, to Macon uh, for a couple of days, it really was just sort of a, a family reunion kind of thing where we all got to hang out together and it was a fun time. 
But the first time that my aunt, my my mom, and my uncle saw Glenn Close in her full her full makeup and costume, uh, really was was one of the more emotional moments of my life. I mean, you know, my uncle mm. was not an emotional man, but was speechless. My my aunt was sort of kind of like physically see her breath being taken away and you couldn't really speak just because of how how emotional she was and it's bizarre how much she looked like her and how much she acted like her you know i i i think she did a great job it's impossible of course in a two-hour movie to capture the personality that was mammal she really was just this larger than life figure but there were these little things that i can't believe that Glenn got right that she did, right? So Mamma always, she held her cigarette in a particular way. And when you see it, you know it, and it's hard to describe. And she, she asked all of us, like, how did Mamma hold her cigarette? We tried to explain it to her, um, but she somehow sort of translated our confused ramblings about it into something that was very good. And you know, Mamma had this twitch that she did with her mouth when she would get really annoyed at something. And, and Glenn got that right. And there were just all these little things about her personality that, you know, even though you can't capture it all in a two hour movie, these sort of little things just made such a, such a big impact on us. And you talked about the movie reviews. Earlier. I just have to say one, one more thing about this. The most, you know, typically don't let this stuff get to me, but one movie review called Glenn Close's portrayal of caricature called Mammal Caricature. And that really pissed me off because that's what Mamaw looked like and that's how she acted. And the idea that she was a caricature, I think is just pretty insulting because she, she, she was a big personality and she was, she was loud and she laughed, you know, with her whole body and she loved to cuss. Uh, but she was just this incredibly loving and, and positive person for all of us. And she she wasn't a caricature. She was just a real person who was a, a, a really, really big and positive influence for a whole family. Honestly, you can't pay attention to those. I do think some of these reviewers, this Hollywood reviewers or even even worse news reviewers, but uh, Hollywood reviewers can be the meanest, soulless, most soulless people in in the business. And I they, they get off on writing hurtful things about um artistic products that don't line up with their own ideology for whatever reason. So please, I urge you to not pay any attention to that. And, and by the way, yeah, if, no, if the audience, I, I, I mostly stay if, away from it. If they have any question about whether Glenn Close's portrayal is a caricature, they should just t- stay tuned for the credits where there's actual video of Mama, and you still think you're looking at Glenn Close. It's the same yeah. person. I mean, and by the way, is it yeah. true that she actually wore, Glenn actually wore Mama's glasses? She did. Yeah. Yeah. My, my aunt gave her, um, mammal's glasses to use for the movie. And so those are actually mammal's glasses. I met that aunt. That's aunt. We aunt Lori. Yeah. Yeah. That's aunt We. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. She's awesome. She's portrayed in the book and I had the pleasure of meeting her and some of your family. So mamma is the star. She, uh, she's somebody who it said a woman ain't fully dressed without a gun. And, yep, uh, that's right. <laughs> she was tough. And the, the the book and the movie portray how she got after you. It wasn't all like, JD, you're wonderful. Not at all. She was like, get it together and was tough on you when she needed to be. But you told me once before, she just got me. She just got me. And and I know you wrote in the book, thinking about it now, how close you were to the abyss. It gives you the chills. And you wrote, I am one lucky son of a bitch. So how much of that had to do with Mama? 
Oh, I mean, m- most of it. Um, you know, a lot, of course, a lot of other folks in, in my life, my sister, my aunt, mom, and, you know, her, her, her own way were all, all just really, really important. But Mamaw was really, I think, the piece that held it all together. Um, she was, you know, when I, th- I, I thought a lot about me saying that she just got me. And I, I think part of what she understood is that you don't really trust yourself until you're sort of forced to experience a certain amount of stress or a certain amount of criticism and you survive it. Right. And so what Mamaw, I think, tried to instill was a sense of resilience that she could be a mean old hag. She could criticize me. She could tell me to get off my ass and do the dishes and help her. She could do all those things. And I didn't sort of buckle. Um, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't too emotionally frail for it. And that kind of gave me this sense of, of strength. And that was just a really, that was a really powerful part of the way that, that she and I interacted, that she could kind of, you know, give me, um, you know, give me these, these little encouragements and these big criticisms, and it would somehow all work in a way where the light bulb went on and I understood her, but I also gained some sense that, you know, yeah, I can, I can, I can stand up to criticism. I can deal with this. And, you know, my, my Marine Corps recruiter once joked that, uh, you know, most kids really struggle with the culture shock of boot camp because you just have these drill instructors yelling at you all the time. She, she, he was like, you know, the drill instructors aren't nearly as mean or as scary as your mammals. You'll be fine. He, <laughs> he was right. You know, when, when they, when they, you sort of realize these weird ways where they try to get under your skin and mammal would do that too. But once you sort of recognize it as such, it's a lot easier to deal with. Mm. Well, I think one of the first things people wondered about you when we saw you making the press rounds as this graduate of Yale Law School, it's like, this guy's writing a book about Appalachia, about, you know, life in the holler. Like, how did he get from A to B? I, like, how on earth did the kid who couldn't see it learn to be it? How, how did it happen? And my own takeaway was, let me introduce you to Mama, who yeah. took you into her custody after one of the abusive incidents with your mom. I think it was the car incident, wasn't it? Where she took you in after? Yeah, it was sort of a, it was sort of lumpy from, you know, that the car incident happened around the time I was 12. And then, you know, I, I was kind of back and forth between mom and Mamaw's house until I was about 14. But it was, I was, it was 14 when I sort of more completely moved in with Mamaw. So uh, that was, you know, it was, it was four years that I was with her, basically all through high school. And that's what did it. Because after after high school came the Marine Corps, which helped. Uh, you completed a four-year education in two years at Ohio State. And then came Yale Law. Can I ask you, how did you get into Yale Law? Did you have perfect grades at Ohio State? Was it your, do you think your unique background helped you? What What was it that made you extraordinary? Because you have to be extraordinary to get in there. You know, I, I think it was a combination of an unusual story. You know, I was a veteran. There were only four veterans in my class. Um, I, had, you know, I had good grades at Ohio State. I had good test scores. It, you know, it's it's a little bit of luck. I, I think, um, you know, you 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 part of applying to law school, or I guess really any any school, is you have to figure out how to market yourself a little bit. And I think I just you know tried to sort of tell a story of a kid from you know, in my essays of a, of a kid raised by his grandparents from a non-conventional background who had good enough grades and, you know, they, they let me in. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I, I can't, I can't provide any more insight to that. I think a lot of it is luck. And, you know, what, what is probably the case is that if you get good enough grades and you have good enough scores, 
and you're not a, a, a total, totally terrible person, you can get into a, a, a pretty good school. And you know, what determines whether you get into a pretty good school or a great school is a little bit of a chance. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about addiction. Uh, because sure. that's another theme of, of the story, both on, on the page and on the screen. Uh, your mother is now thankfully a recovering addict, but she's been an, an addict for a long, long time. And as somebody who's had this in my own family of origin, um, I thought the movie did a wonderful job of showing how explosive this can be on a family. That, you know, how drugs... They kidnap your loved one, and like a like a true kidnapper, they they demand a ransom that you can never really pay off, you know, and that never yep. really leads to the return of your family member as you knew her. Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. Um, it's one of those things where you try to make sense of it until you just realize that you can't actually make sense of it because. Your mom was and, and is, like I said, she's been clean for six years. She's so smart. She's so funny. She's just, you know, one of these like charismatic people, which is, is true of a lot of the folks in our family. It's true of, of Mamaw. It's, you know, true of, of my sister and my cousin Rachel in their own ways. You know, these are sort of people who can, you know, show up at a totally different family's family reunion and get invited to, to give a speech to the whole family. That actually, you know, that happened when we went to visit the set in Macon, Georgia. Our hotel room was, sorry, this is a, a diversion, but our hotel room was in a hotel where this big family was having like a 300-person family reunion. And my whole family got invited to the family reunion because, you know, they met some of my family and they were just so taken with them, so taken with with my uncle, with my cousin, with mom, with everybody. And I, I think that's that's sort of what, is so difficult again to understand or to try to apply any reason to is like mom is just this person with so much going for why did she kept on being keep keep on being attracted to the drugs like what was it and i i think that you know part of it is is definitely that i think her life just didn't go in the way that she hoped it would she was a very promising student in her own right and, and things, you know, went off the rails, you got pregnant very young, had my sister and you know, that, that, that changes things and changes the calculus pretty quickly. Um, but it's always just like there was something that the rest of life couldn't provide some sensation, some feeling that kids and partners and friends and family just couldn't quite fill that void. And she kept on, you know, she should have kept on returning to the drugs. And there was a time when I was writing the book where I thought to myself, you know, is, should I put this in there because mom's going to read it and, you know, people are going to read this stuff about our family. And I, I really just thought to myself, well, mom's not going to read it because she'll be dead by the time the book comes out. Um, mm. And I was just confident that's how it would end, right? That, that every, call it six months, 12 months, because sometimes it might even go a little bit longer, but there would always be a relapse. It would always land her in the hospital. It would always nearly kill her. And eventually uh, she was going to play Russian roulette too many times and, and she was not going to come back from it. And, and, and again, just as unreasonably as addiction takes hold of some people, 
uh, for some people, they're, they're just able to, to snap out of it. And um, I have tried to psychoanalyze and think about you know, what it is, what it is that has made mom six years clean. And I really do feel this time confidence for the first time in my life uh, that she, she won't use drugs again. And I think, you know, part of it is definitely just getting your life in order, having a good relationship with your family and your kids, you know, not being stressed out about things, job, money, husbands, whatever. So just having your life in order in a way helps a lot. But there were times when mom had her life in order and she went back to drugs and um, she just hasn't this time. And I, I don't I don't get it. I wish that I could say something more insightful about it. But the 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 reason that void exists is psychologically complex and really difficult to try to explain away using rationality. It's so much about feelings and so much about intuition. Well, I. I understand what you said about you know, she's looking for a way to feel better about her life. And there is a scene in the in the movie that it confused me the way I felt. It has her. She's a nurse. She stole drugs uh, in the hospital and then puts on roller skates and is going through the ICU on roller skates, skates. And she's totally joyful. She's on drugs. She's high. But she is smiling and she's laughing. And you kind of get it. I like the way the film was done. It's by Ron Howard, I think, if I didn't mention that. But if you kind of get, it's like, oh, my God, there it is, some joy for this poor woman who in every scene faces one struggle or another and, and may often have a good attitude about it, but you don't, you don't see a lot of joy. And it's like it kind of shows you how the drugs can be an escape to joy, to happiness, if only for a moment. And, of course, the bitter irony is the come down after and the real effect of drugs on your life is anything but joyful. And, yep. you know, I thought Amy Adams did a great job of taking us there. Her physical transformation was shocking, right? Amy Adams looked nothing like herself. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was perfect because having seen this happen to, you know, someone close to me, the physical transformation can be dramatic. You know, the, the gray hair and the teeth and, just the the weight gain or extreme weight loss one way or the other. And and I remember looking at my family member thinking, she's in there, but where? Where? And and yeah. if if and when I can get her back, what am I going to get? You know, who who will it be? You know, do you ever have that feeling? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean I you first of all, the, the person is always there, right? And it's even when they're at the the peak of their you know toughest moments. You know, the book sort of dramatizes this scene where you know mom has this this overdose, and I'm I'm trying to help her find a place to stay for the night. And you know, it's it's not a totally perfect match with my life, but you know, there are significant parts of it that are true. And movie, what I remember, does, yeah. what, and, sorry, sorry, the, yeah, the, the movie dramatizes those parts. Um, but fundamentally, like they're they're real and they're there. Um, and what I remember most about that time of my life is actually not the stress of trying to find mom a place to stay or sort of the uncertainty about what to do. It was that mom was still like mom most of the time, right? She was still sort of her funny self. You know, you pull up to this hotel. And she looks at it as like, oh, do I really have to stay in this dump? Um, or, you know, you, you, you walk by. I mean, th this is like one of the, the more crystal memories of my life because it was like 
again, it was like a scene out of the movie. I remember there was like a guy actually shooting up in the parking lot. Um, the the hotel was just sort of depressing and decrepit in a way that was pretty, you know, pretty, pretty hard to believe. And, you know, we chose it because they had an open room and because it was cheap enough for me to afford. I was still, you know, at that point, I didn't have a whole lot of money. Um, but you, 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 like we walked by this guy like doing drugs in his pickup truck and mom's like, oh, hey, do you want to go say hi to Terry? It's like, what, you don't really know that person. She's, you know, she, she says, of course not. Of course I don't know this person, right? <laughs> she, 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 that's just who, that's like who she is, right? Like this is how mom has always been. And, and you're right, like she was always in there. And I always just as a kid wanted her, you know, desperately to sort of come out and, and figure it out. And of course, there's a part of it where you feel inadequate yourself. I don't know if you've, you've experienced this, but you, know, you wonder why you can't get that person who's in there all the time. It's because of something about you, something you've done, something you failed to do. So you're always you know, worried about that and trying to you know, modify your behaviors in such a way where you don't trigger them and you get to get the, you know, the good person that you know is in there all the time. Um. But I think eventually most people just get to the point where they, they kind of psychologically give up with somebody who's chronically addicted. You know, I've talked to so many people about it uh, since the book came out. And you know, what, what, I, what I always, it's just so true and it's so consistent. And I hear it so many times that I think it's, it's nearly a universal response is that everybody eventually reaches a breaking point where they just start grieving for the person and they lose all hope that the person can ever come back. And that loss of hope, I think, is, is sort of a protective. It's like a psychologically protective measure because you, you want to stop investing yourself emotionally in this idea that this, this person could get better. And of course, what, what's so crazy about that is I feel like all of us have gotten there with, with mom. And then it just changed and things got better. And again, it's it's one of those things where I, I truly, you know, I'm 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 a practicing Christian, and there there is a part of me that wonders: is is it just like an act of God? Is there just this moment where something supernatural happens? Because that's the only way I can even try to explain it in my mind. It is eventually a, a switch flipped that had never been able to I'd never been able to flip before. I tried to flip it myself so many times before, and I hadn't. You know, people ask me actually about about mom being clean. Is you know, do you think the book helped? Right? Do you think that uh, the book made mom more sober, or sort of at least opened up some lines of communication and got her on the right path? And I would love to say the answer is yes, but I don't. Th- I don't think it is. You know, frankly, if I had known that when the book came out, mom would be, I think about she was like two and a half years sober at that point, I probably wouldn't have published it. Uh, because if anything, I think it's probably made it harder for mom to stay on the straight and narrow. But to her credit, she has, um, you know, having all these stories out there about you, it, it hasn't been easy. Um, and I, I admire mom for kind of taking it on the chin. Um, you know, there there was actually a funeral for a family friend not too long after the book came out. And um, there were people posting about the book and whether you know, I was going to be there sort of other people in the family were going to be there on Facebook. And I, I think mom got on Facebook and said, basically, yeah, I'm the drug addict in the book and I'll be there. <laughs> I, you know, there's, there's, there, so, so anyway, the long way of saying, I don't think the book has been, you know, 
at least all the way positive. Maybe there have been some positive components and good conversations that mom and I had. That's definitely true. But it's it's also just been very stressful. And so I don't think I can take any credit for it. Um, I think if there's anything, you know, that that I could take even indirect credit for, it might be the grandkids. You know, when when our son Yoon was born, my sister's oldest kid, or sorry, my sister's youngest kid was was a teenager at that point. Um, and and I think that you know having the relationship with her grandkids to work towards, and mom is just such a great grandma, and the kids love her. I think that was a really powerful thing, and it has helped her a lot. But at a certain level, I'm just trying to invent theories or explanations for for a, a phenomenon that I can't really reasonably explain. Well, while you're, I know that Mama wasn't the greatest mom to your mom, but she was a great grandmother. And so while your mom may not have had the best role model as a mom, she certainly got a good role model and how to be a great grandma. And, um, you know, you, you manifest that in both in the telling of both stories. I mean, I love that scene they put in the movie of you with your mom in the hotel, because I think when you're dealing with an addict for most of the time, you as the family member go through this if I could just, if I could just, and and you're, you're deluding yourself that if you just gave this money or offered this help or got her into this rehab or whatever, you're going to get her over the bridge. She's going to bridge back to sober and normal and, you know, not, not addicted. And it takes years of doing that and failing for you to finally let go of, if I could just, and learn to just not walk away, but take care of yourself. And that's what happened in that scene in the movie where, you know, the, your Amy Adams wanted the fictional you to stay with her when the alternative was going and making this really important interview. And if you had stayed with her, you would have missed this interview. You would have missed the chance to change your life and you leave, you, you do it, which is an empowering moment in the film. Because I think most people dealing with addicts finally have to get to the point of letting go a bit. And, and ironically, it can help the addict, you know, it can help them reach rock bottom, it could help them realize they have to help themselves or what's what they're about to lose, you know, that the the family's not going to save them. Um, and I think it's amazing. I having now covered you for a couple of years and followed you. I love that Beverly is six years sober. That's such a game changer for you, your family, your kids, all of them. And I, I read that she said, um, the quote I read, I think it was your your cousin who wrote an article as a journalist about about this and said, she said, I'm yep. going to stand proud when this movie comes out. It's it is what it is. And I am who I am and I'm OK. And it's helped us all grow. You got to feel pretty good about that. Yeah, I, I do. I do. Um, you know, when, when you when you grow up in a tough environment and you see so many of these these social problems and they kind of surround you. There, there's a part at least of me that wondered like, is, is there just something wrong with us? Right. Is, is, is it, is it genetic? Is it psychological? Is it, you know, what, what makes this happen again and again? And one of the things the book allowed me to do was take a much bigger view of this. It wasn't just like, well, things were kind of crappy last year and they're crappy this year. And it seems like it's never going to change. But this ability to put the problems of our family in this this multi-generational context. So, like, you know, why are our families so traumatic? 
you start to understand because that cycle of childhood trauma and chaos, it recreates and replicates itself. Um, you know, why was this the land of opportunity in the 1950s, but now it feels like a place people are just desperate to get out of? You know, why is this addiction epidemic sort of taking hold of our community, but specifically our family? And I, I think kind of zooming out a little bit, which is what the book tried to do, um, obviously in the context of my, my own family, did help us all understand these things a little bit better and kind of start to appreciate the connections between what was going on, not just in Mammal's life, but you know, when Mammal was a childhood running, or was a child running uh, from Jackson, Kentucky in the mid-1940s, and how there was a through line, you know, 60, 70 years later, to the way that I sort of instinctively react to conflict when a guy cuts me off when I'm you know, driving my kids around. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that context and that through line gave us a little bit more of an anchoring, a little bit more of an appreciation, and and importantly, just led to a lot of conversations. Um, you know, we never talked about this stuff. Um, the book sort of forced that and forced it in an uncomfortable way. So I, I do think if there is a positive for the to the book for my family. It's that it's just given us a lot to think about and chew on together, and that's been a little cathartic sometimes, right? It's like, you know, we actually talk about this stuff and get it out in the open, and you know, even yell at each other a little bit. It kind of feels better afterwards because you've at least you've talked about things that people are thinking and feeling, um, and and that that is that is something I appreciate about the book and the experience of writing it and publishing, as it, it's at least served as a forcing function in that way. Absolutely, it's it's a bit of a cleansing process. You mentioned the road rage. I I love there's a line in the book that says hillbillies could go from zero to murderous in a fucking heartbeat. That's, that's <laughs> do not cut off a hillbilly. <laughs> For the love of God, this holiday season when driving home from Thanksgiving, do not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no no really. Um yeah, my my wife sort of recognized. I mean, you know, when we were dating, she recognizes impulse anywhere you know, if somebody cut you off, it's like a challenge to your manhood and you have to go cut them off and then, you know, threaten to get out of your car and beat their ass. And, you know, it's just (laughs) one of these things where, you know, you you can't do that, right? When you've got a family that depends on you and two kids, it's, it's understandable that that's your instinct, that that's what you grew up around, but you just can't do it. And that, that recognition has been pretty powerful. Well, not only that, but your wife's got this killer career who I mentioned her earlier, but Usha, clerked for Brett Kavanaugh when he was on the Court of Appeals and then moved on to a clerkship after that with Chief Justice John Roberts. Um, so <laughs> she's pretty uh, accomplished and impressive, too. Is that is that humbling? <laughs> What's that like? Yeah, you know, it's it's it, it's definitely um, I don't know that I'd say it's humbling, you know, Usha. I guess I guess it is like you should definitely brings me back to earth a little bit. And if I, if I maybe get a little too cocky or a little too proud, I just remind myself that you know, she's, she's way more accomplished than I am. Um, you know, what, what, what is interesting about, about my life and just about, about, you know, Usha um, as part of it is that, you know, somebody pointed out that there's, there's this weird way in which like every phase of your life, you have this like strong female that you could attach yourself to, right? It was your mammal, it was your sister, it was your aunt, and now it's Usha. 
And I think that's probably a pretty critical insight that like I'm I'm one of those I'm one of those guys who really benefits from having like a sort of powerful female voice in his left shoulder saying, don't do that, do do that. Uh it's just it's it it just it, it just is important. Um and you know, Usha is just people, you know, I think look at her credentials and think, oh, but she's you know, she's she's so impressive and just, I think people don't realize how just brilliant she is. Um, you know, she is one of these people who, first of all, she reads books like faster than anybody that I've ever seen read a book. Um, you know, she can read like a thousand page book in a few hours sitting and just absorb wow. the information incredibly. And she, you know, she's one of these people where you know, Amy Chu actually once said this about Usha, and it's so true. It's like a perfect crystallization of how she thinks that you know. Usha can take an impre- incredibly complex set of facts and information and details and just absorb them on first reading or on first hearing it. And then if you ask her about it, she can spit it out in a way that makes more sense coming out than it actually did going in, right? She can sort of like harmonize information faster than anybody that I've ever met. She must um, be terrifying to argue with. Oh my God, it's terrible. It's, it's just terrible. <laughs> Um, and she be. uses, you know, so much facts and logic, and I just constantly am ah, like, no, no, facts no, facts no. and logic. You can't, you can't do that. I know <laughs> that is tough in a spouse, yeah. JD. I feel it is, for you there. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very it's very tough. Well, um, can I ask you about that? Because I am thinking about when I was thinking about you and your life, and I love I love that you're happily married. You've got your two boys now, and you know you moved back to Ohio, and you're doing venture capital for companies that are not in Silicon Valley that are sort of outside and more flyover country. I like that. Of course, all the rest of us hope you run for office someday, which I know you told me last time, maybe we'll see, <laughs> but what do you, what do we have to feel hopeful about? Right. It's, this is right around Thanksgiving. So what are we, what are we feeling good about when it comes to our country and ourselves? First of all, I'm, I'm one of these people who believes that to actually solve problems, you have to be, pretty honest with yourself about what the problems are. That's sort of the first and most important step. And when I think about what I'm most optimistic at a national level, it's even if you're not happy that that Biden uh, was elected, or even if you um, are really, really frustrated as, as a lot of folks are. And, you know, to be clear, I didn't vote for Biden. I I voted for Trump. Um, I don't think that we're having the same dumb conversations about the problems that we were 30 years ago. Uh, there is a recognition and, and, you know, like I know a lot of people don't like AOC. A lot of people don't like Bernie Sanders. A lot of people don't like Tucker Carlson, who's become a, a good friend of mine, but those people I think are at least circling around the fact that you do have real problems in this country, that you do have an opioid problem that's killing tens of thousands of people. You do have, the decline of the American manufacturing sector in a way that's that's caused a lot of hopelessness and a lot of joblessness. You do have these multi-generational cycles of family poverty and trauma and abuse. I, I think there was this weird conceit that we had that things were just getting better indefinitely. It was the end of history, that if there was any real problem in America, we could solve it with a little redistribution from rich to poor. And, and I at least think that most people, I'm frankly, both the left and the right recognize that's not happening and that we're actually making real progress in understanding the nature of the challenges. So I, I'm optimistic about the fact that we're just being honest with ourselves 
about the real problems that exist in the country, at least more so than we were uh, a couple uh, couple decades ago. Um, I, I'm I'm optimistic that you know we just went through in some ways a very traumatic moment of American history, a really tough election, a pandemic killed a lot of people, the economic fallout from the pandemic and some of our response to it that has caused a lot of misery. But we're still basically here, right? People are still getting together with their families mostly. I know some people, you know, are are are, are being cautious and I understand that. Um, but there's they're still finding ways to be together, uh, to talk to one another. You know, children are still um, you know, I, I think of them as, as, you know, it's trite, but it's the most important thing. The children are still being born and raised. And, you know, we have a, a, a next generation of Americans that's coming online. And I think that's, that's just, it's hard not to be optimistic about that. And, you know, as, as tough as it's been, the country is actually still standing, which is, which is sort of crazy. We've, we've survived most of the way through a pandemic, we appear to have vaccines that are coming online. The economic damage has been severe. The social damage has been severe, but it hasn't wiped the country off the face of the earth. And I, I, I guess the way that I put it is, is I think we've shown ourselves to be a pretty resilient country. So even though there are a lot of problems, there's also a lot of resilience out there. And I take some solace in that. I know that uh, you, you wrote in the book, I, I want people to know what it feels like to nearly give up on yourself. And, and why you might do it um, to see sort of what the other possibilities are, right? Like you were one of those people, you know, of, of what you speak, you lived it and you, you managed to get yourself out even without a lot of role models, which hopefully now you will be. Hopefully now the kids sitting in their neighborhoods in Middletown or what have you will say when asking the question, why try why try? Because J.D. Vance, because there is a way forward, because maybe maybe I could be at Yale Law School or in the Marine Corps or, or married to Usha, someone like her with kids and a brilliant future ahead of me. Maybe I could. Maybe notwithstanding what people are telling me, I could. I don't know, J.D. I think we need more of that and more of the possibility of agency and, and less of the you're downtrodden, you're a victim, and there's no way forward. And I'm, it's one of the reasons I'm doing the show. And it's one of the reasons why I find your message so super empowering. Um, last question. Do I, do I hear you offering this from the bully pulpit one day? You were a little down on the possibility. You, you were down on politicians. <laughs> and I know you've, you've been scolded for being too down on that because you don't want to discourage good people from going into running for office. But realistically, because I, I don't want you on the couch. I, I don't want you to, you know, retreat to that instinct just in case Usha's too busy with her law job to get you off of there. Right? Like, are you going to get out there? Because we need people like you. Well, I think I'll continue to talk a lot about stuff that matters and try to be involved in the policy conversation on the right. You know, I've, I've done you know a fair amount of work there, try to encourage your different folks to think about certain issues in, in, in different and hopefully innovative ways. I mean, to, to, to be honest, the thing about politics, uh, and I'll, I'll just I'll be very direct, is um, I'm feeling a little selfish right now. And, and what I mean is that, you know, I, I, I woke up this morning, um, Usha was, was up late last night, and so I had both the boys this morning by myself. We made breakfast together, you know, we played together, 
you know, you and the toddler told me a lot of goofy, ridiculous jokes. And I'm just not quite ready to give up on that yet. And I think that, you know, there is a reason that people call politics sacrifice. Uh, you got to spend a lot of time away from your family. You've got to got to work on things. And I think it's, you know, I, I've come around to the view, at least, that a lot of people do it for noble reasons. Some people don't, but a lot of people do it for noble reasons. Um, so I'll tell you the same thing I told you a few years ago, which is d- definitely not, not, you know, something I'd rule out sometime down the road. But, you know, right, right now, it's like the only thing I really want, I didn't care about you know, law school. I didn't care about having a nice job. I didn't care about making money, certainly not writing a big book. But the only thing I really wanted is, is the life that I have right now, like getting up and, you know, knowing that I'll be able to give my kids the things that uh, I didn't have and knowing that they look at their mom and dad as a rock, that they'll always be there for them. And just getting to spend that time with them, you know, spending time with mom who's been sober for six years, having, you know, my sister and my aunt build a relationship with my kids, like all of those things I selfishly want to continue for at least a little while before I think about politics. And, you know, once, once I get to the point where I feel like I've had at least, um, enough of that that I've gotten my fill and then maybe that's a different conversation then but but for now I'm I'm sort of unfortunately maybe to you uh, content to be a little selfish and just enjoy this while I can well you're young so it's okay I I'll I'll allow it <laughs> All right, but don't thank you. I, don't don't be too <laughs> selfish for too long I cuz I everything you've gone through everything your family's gone through they they make me believe the line from Hillbilly Elegy that hillbillies are the toughest goddamn people on this earth. And we we need more people like that with thick skins and a tough attitude to, to take on some of these battles that we all want fought. Listen, do me a favor, send my love to your family. Aunt we, Lindsay, who I met and loved. And um, just know that as always, I'm rooting for you. Thanks, Megan. I, I appreciate it. Today's episode was brought to you in part by Truthfinder. Start your search today. To learn more, go to www.truthfinder.com slash Kelly. Want to tell you that as we head into this Thanksgiving holiday, uh, I'm thankful for a lot of things. Very, very thankful for my family, all of whom are doing well and healthy. That's a blessing, especially my mom, who she's getting up there in the years and uh, she's great. And I'm going to be seeing her and I'm just so, so grateful. I I miss her. I haven't seen my mom in over a year, in in almost a year and a half now. I'm going to see her. I'm not going to be in New York. And, uh, I can't wait to put my arms around her and give her a big hug. And I'm also thankful for all of you. I'm thankful for the folks who are subscribing to this podcast and listening and helping to make us consistently at the top of the podcast charts, even though we're just a little baby podcast. We're just like, we're in our infancy, but we're crushing it thanks to you guys. And uh, I know there's a lot of choices out there. You don't have to be downloading and subscribing, but you, you are. And it's wonderful to see. I love that we're having these experiences together and we're learning together. So thank you for that. And if you haven't already done that, then go ahead now. Now's a good time to subscribe and download and rate five stars and review. And uh, before we go, I want to tell you that next up on the pod on Friday will be Shelby Steele and his son, Eli Steele, who have just come out with a new movie called What Killed Michael Brown. And they're taking a hard look at sort of what's really going on in communities like Ferguson, Missouri and within the black community. And they also look at the Michael Brown case in particular. But I want to tell you in advance that there was a very powerful moment, very powerful moment in this interview that surprised us all 
It had, I, that night I was like, Doug, you're not going to believe what happened on this podcast. It was really moving and kind of profound. So that's all I'm going to say because it's a tease and I do want you to tune in and hear it and experience it for yourselves. Uh, but trust me, it doesn't disappoint. So have a wonderful holiday and I'll talk to you on Friday. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The Megan Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures.